This is literally everything, 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 everything. If you're like me, you have a pile of books older than your grandma's mom and taller than the Empire State Building just begging to be read. To top it off, you probably add several books to said pile every week, yet somehow find yourself in a reading slump with nothing to read. Uh Uh-huh, I see you. In an attempt to tackle my never-ending pile of books, I decided to start a podcast with hopes of making some sort of dent in said pile, and maybe help inspire your next read. I'm Odell. Welcome to Just Read It Already. Happy October, book nerds. It's still September when I'm recording this, but when this drops, we are officially in the month of Halloween, and I could not be more excited. Today, I kick off my month of scary book reviews. This entire month, I'll be reviewing books that fall into the horror, mystery, suspense, thriller genres, or at least they're marketed as such. Along with my standard 1-5 to star rating for each book, I'll also give each read a 1-5 to on my personal scary meter. This week, I have reviews of Jennifer Dugan's The Last Girl Standing, William Friend's Let Him In, Kirsten White's Mr. Magic, Isabel Canya's The Vampires of El Norte, and Elizabeth Hand's A Haunting on the Hill. But first, let's look at some new releases for this week. First on my list is Let Him In by William Friend. This is a haunted house story, and I will have a review on it later in this episode. Next is A Haunting on the Hill by Elizabeth Hand, another haunted house story that I will also be reviewing today. Next is The Voice Upstairs by Laura Weymouth. In 1920s England, a working-class girl who can see spirits works with a lord's son to solve mysterious deaths. Then we have Maybe Once, Maybe Twice by Alison Rose Greenberg. Filled with the romance and angst that defines the years you come to know yourself, with a shifting timeline covering two decades and ratcheting up the tension, this is a novel of second chances and finding your own way. Then we have Queen by Vishay Chum, or Chum, C-H-U-M, a searing and joyful YA debut about a queer Cambodian-American teen's journey to find her voice and step into her legacy. Then we have Yumi and the Nightmare Painter by Brandon Sanderson, a gripping story where two people from incredibly different worlds must compromise and work together to save their worlds from ruin. I've heard really good things about Brandon Sanderson. I need to check out some of his books. Then we have Silence and Shadow by Aaron Beatty, the sequel to the buzzworthy YA medieval fantasy thriller Blood and Moonlight, full of swoony romance, dangerous magic, and murder. Next is Death Valley by Melissa Broder. This is a darkly funny novel about grief that becomes a desert survival story. Next is Wreck the Halls by Tessa Bailey. Damn, we're already starting on the Christmas books. A sexy, hilarious standalone holiday rom-com about the adult children of two former rock stars who team up to convince their estranged mothers to play a Christmas Eve concert. That actually sounds really fun. I will put that on my list for after Halloween. Thank you. You gotta respect the best holiday ever. Next is Wildfire by Hannah Grace, the latest in the Maple Hills series following two summer camp counselors who reconnect after a sizzling one-night stand. Did I just sound like Whitney Rose when I said Hills? probably dead. If you're a Housewives fan, you know what I'm talking about. 
Okay, Knock Knock Open Wide is our next one by Neil Sharpson. This book weaves horror and Celtic myth into a terrifying, heartbreaking supernatural tale of fractured family bonds, the secrets we carry, and the veiled forces that guide Irish life. Next is Roaring Days of Zora Lily by Noelle Salazar. The discovery of a hidden label on a famous gown unearths the story of a talented young seamstress in this glittering novel of family, love, ambition, and self-discovery. Then we have Beholder by Ryan LaSala, a chilling new contemporary fable about art, aesthetic obsession, and the gaze that peers back at us from behind our reflections. Then we have The Dead Take the A-Train by Cassandra Ka and Richard Kadri, or Kadri, K-A-D-R-E-Y, a dark new story with magic, monsters, and mayhem. Next is Kill Show by Daniel Swearen Becker. When 16-year-old Sarah Purcell goes missing, it's an utter tragedy and an entertaining national obsession in this thoughtful and addictively readable novel that offers a fresh and provocative take on whodunits and true crime. Next is If I Had Only Told Her by Laura Nowlin. Told through three different perspectives, If I Only Told Her is a love story brimming with truth, tragedy, and unexpected bonds that heal us. And next on my very long list, we have Becoming Calder by Mia Sheridan the first book in the Acadia duology, a forbidden friends-to-lovers romance. Then we have And Don't Look Back by Rebecca Barrow. After her mother's death, a teen pieces together the truth of her family's past and what her mom was hiding from. Next is After the Forest by Kel Woods, a dark and enchanting fantasy debut that explores the repercussions of a childhood filled with magic and a young woman contending with the truth of happily ever after. Next is The List by Yomi Aragoki. A high-profile female journalist's world is upended when her fiancé's name turns up in a viral social media post. Then we have My Darling Girl by Jennifer McMahon, a spine-tingling psychological thriller about a woman who, after taking in her dying alcoholic mother, begins to suspect demonic possession is haunting her family. I like Jennifer McMahon's books. Definitely going to check that one out. Then we have Starling House by Alex E. Harrow, or Harrow, a grim and gothic tale about a small town haunted by secrets that can't stay buried and the sinister house that sits at the crossroads of it all. I will definitely be checking that one out. And last on this list is Midnight is the Darkest Hour by Ashley Winstead. It's about a killer haunting a small Louisiana town where two outcasts, the preacher's daughter and the boy from the wrong side of the tracks, hold the key to uncovering the truth. That is also on my pre-order list. I have no new books this week. I've been doing really good with my book buying ban, and I've stayed off of NetGalley trying to pace myself with the arcs. So nothing new to report this week. So I guess we will jump right into the reviews. We'll start by looking at The Last Girl Standing by Jennifer Dugan. This book was first published on August 15th, 2023 by G.P. Putnam Sons Books for Young Readers. The synopsis reads, Sloan and Cherry. Cherry and Sloan. They met only a few days before masked men with machetes attacked the summer camp where they worked, a massacre that left the rest of their fellow counselors dead. Now, months later, the two are inseparable, their traumatic experience bonding them in ways no one else can understand. But as new evidence comes to light and Sloane learns more about the motives behind the ritual killing that brought them together, she begins to suspect that her girlfriend may be more than just a survivor. She may actually have been a part of it. Cherry tries to reassure her, but Sloane only becomes more distraught. Is this gaslighting or reality? 
Is Cherry a victim or a perpetrator? Is Sloane confused, or is she seeing things clearly for the first time? Against all odds, Sloane survived that hot summer night, but will she survive what comes next? If you've followed this podcast for any length of time, or if you know me personally, then you know that I am a sucker for a summer camp slasher. Should come as no surprise that I jumped on this book as soon as I saw it. The book is described as a queer young adult psychological thriller that delves deep into the aftermath of a horrifying summer camp massacre. The story follows Sloane and Cherry, the sole surviving counselors, as they navigate the dark and twisted secrets that unravel after the attack. All Sloane remembers from that night is hearing screams and then looking out her window and seeing people in animal masks hacking at her fellow counselors. She remembers hiding in her cabin, and then the next thing she remembers is she was hiding under a canoe with Cherry covered in blood. But how she got from the cabin to the canoe remains a mystery. Cherry has filled her in on the blank spots, but as she goes through therapy and tries to unlock the door trapping her memory, she begins to wonder if maybe Cherry was part of the cult that attacked the camp, and is she still in danger? From the very beginning, the concept of the last girl standing intrigued me. The idea of a summer camp massacre and then exploring the aftermath of such a traumatic event sounded captivating. I wanted to find out what happened that night, and I wanted to see how the characters would cope with the aftermath and unravel the mystery surrounding the what and the why of that bloody night. Sounded terrifying, but I must admit that I did not find the book to be as scary or creepy as I initially anticipated. The horror elements seemed to take a backseat to the mystery, which ended up being more of a focus throughout the novel. One aspect that left me wanting more was the lack of detail regarding the actual night the masked strangers attacked the summer camp. While the book does provide flashbacks and glimpses into that night, I wanted a more in-depth exploration of the events that transpired. To me, it felt like the flashbacks only scratched the surface of what occurred, and I felt that there was much left unexplored. I realized that the mystery of what really happened was necessary to the overall mystery, especially for the ending, but I still wanted to know what happened exactly. Despite this, the character development in The Last Girl Standing is top-notch. Cherry and Sloane's bond forged through their shared trauma is palpable and their romantic relationship believable. Dugan did an exceptional job showcasing the complexities of the relationship as both Sloane and the readers questioned Cherry's innocence. The dynamic between the two is definitely filled with tension, left me constantly guessing. Was Cherry really involved, or did the entire ordeal just push Sloane past her breaking point? The mystery aspect of the book is the main focus, and I will admit it's a strong mystery. The plot unfolds at a steady pace, with hidden revelations and clues gradually emerging, but are they really clues or simply misinterpretations? We see things only through Sloane's eyes, so it's hard to know if what we're led to believe is really the truth. And this is exactly what keeps you on edge. I've seen several complaints about the ambiguous ending, but to me, that was one of the stronger points of the book. I personally enjoy an oh shit moment, and the ending of this book definitely provides exactly that. It's shocking. And we're left with unanswered questions, allowing room for interpretation. So I appreciate when an author trusts the reader to draw their own conclusions, and this just added depth to the overall reading experience. It's this ending that ultimately earned the book an extra half-star rating for me. Now, while the horror element may not have been as prominent as expected, the book is engaging. Would I read it again? Probably not, but I did enjoy it, even if it wasn't as scary as I'd hoped. If you're looking for a book that combines queer representation, budding romance, and a dark mystery, or if you like a lighter, scary read, then give this one a shot. 
I gave it three stars with an extra half star for the ambiguous ending. And then I gave it two out of five stars on my scary meter. Next, we'll take a look at William Friend's Let Him In. I received an arc of this book courtesy of the publisher through NetGalley in exchange for an honest review. This book was first published on October 3rd, 2023 by Poisoned Pen Press. The synopsis reads, Alfie wakes one night to find his twin daughters at the foot of his bed, claiming there's a shadowy figure in their bedroom. When no such thing can be found, he assumes the girls had a nightmare. He isn't surprised that they're troubled. Grief has made its home at Hart House. Nine months ago, the twins' mother Pippa died unexpectedly, leaving Alfie to raise them alone. And now, when the girls mention a new imaginary friend, it seems like a harmless coping mechanism. But the situation quickly develops into something more insidious. The girls set an extra place for him at the table. They whisper to him. They say he's going to take them away. Alfie calls upon Julia, Pippa's sister, and a psychiatrist to oust the malignant tenant from their lives, but as Alfie himself is haunted by visions and someone watches him at night, he begins to question the true character of the force that has poisoned his daughter's minds, with dark and violent consequences. Whatever this friend is, he doesn't want to leave. Alfie will have to confront his own shameful secrets, the dark past of Hart House, and even the bounds of reality, or risk taking part in an unspeakable tragedy. Not only do I love a good slasher, but I also love a good haunted house tale. Anything in the vein of The Haunting of Hill House or The Turn of the Screw, especially the Mike Flanagan versions, will have me throwing my money at them. I love to cuddle up on the couch, turn off the lights, and get freaked out, whether it's with a book, movie, or TV series. I was beyond excited to read this one after reading the synopsis and was happy to be approved for a galley on NetGalley. It's a quick read, and while the story is definitely creepy, it didn't fully hit the marks that I was hoping for. Let Him In is a haunting tale that explores the depths of grief and the lengths a father will go to protect his children. It's set against the eerie backdrop of Hart House in London, and while I wasn't completely freaked out, I was engaged all the way through to the very surprising ending. The story focuses on Alfie, a grieving father who is struggling to raise his twin daughters, Kasia and Sylvie, following the sudden death of his wife, Pippa. When the girls claim to have an imaginary friend who's haunting their bedroom, Alfie dismisses it as a result of their grief. Yet, as the story unfolds, it becomes clear that there is something much more sinister at play. Friends skillfully builds an atmospheric setting within the walls of Hart House. The old, creaking house holds secrets, constantly reminding us that anyone who steps foot in the house isn't exactly safe. As Alfie delves deeper into the mystery surrounding his daughter's imaginary friend, the house seems to come alive, revealing its own dark secrets. The narrative kept me engaged from the very beginning. The writing style is descriptive and immersive and paints a vivid picture of the eerie house. It helps heighten the tension. And while there was a sense of malice hanging about, I never felt completely sure of what this presence was until much later in the book. Is it a ghost? Is it a demon? Is it all just the family's imagination? It becomes a little more clear towards the end what we're dealing with, but I wanted more of that early on. I also felt the pace was a little uneven. The first two-thirds or so of the book seemed to be building towards something big and then fell a little flat. There were also a few scenes that felt repetitive until finally we were barreling toward the end. I will admit there were times when I was a bit lost. The character development in Let Him In is probably its strongest element. 
friend delves deeply into the psychological effects of loss and creates a sense of unease that extends beyond the supernatural elements of the story. The grief-stricken characters are convincingly portrayed. This adds depth and emotional weight to the overall narrative. Alfie is an empathetic protagonist. He's burdened by guilt, haunted by his past. The reader can't help but sympathize with him as he struggles to protect his daughters from this unknown force that threatens them. Julia, Pippa's sister, adds another layer to the story as a psychiatrist who assists Alfie in uncovering the truth. Her own personal connection to the events at Hart House adds an extra element of intrigue. I will admit, I wanted more around this. A chapter or two with more detail as to what happened at Hart House years before when Julia lived there would have greatly benefited the overall story. While the concept and execution of the story is strong, Let Him In falls just short of being genuinely terrifying. While there are certainly moments of creepiness, I was never fully frightened or really on the edge of my seat, but the ending is definitely a shocker. It leaves the reader guessing and I like that a lot. With its well-developed characters, atmospheric setting, and exploration of grief, this book is enjoyable, again, just left me wanting a little more. While it might not reach the heights of bone-chilling horror, the ending will definitely linger in your mind long after you've finished. I gave this one three stars overall and a two and a half on the scary meter. I'll be right back after the break. It's time to take a look at Mr. Magic by Kirsten White. This book was first published on August 8th, 2023 by Del Rey and was one of my selections in my August Aardvark book club box. The synopsis reads, 30 years after a tragic accident shut down production of the classic children's program, Mr. Magic, the five surviving cast members have done their best to move on. But just as generations of cultishly devoted fans still cling to the lessons they learned from the show, the cast, known as the Circle of Friends, have spent their lives searching for the happiness they felt while they were on it. The friendship, the feeling of belonging, and the protection of Mr. Magic. But with no surviving video of the show, no evidence of who directed or produced it, and no records of who or what the beloved host actually was, memories are all the former Circle of Friends has. Then, a twist of fate brings the castmates back together at the remote desert filming compound that feels like it's been waiting for them all this time. Even though they haven't seen each other for years, they understand one another better than anyone has since. After all, they're the only ones who hold the secret of that circle, the mystery of the magic man in his infinitely black cape, and maybe, the answers to what really happened on that deadly last day. But as the circle of friends reclaim parts of their past, they begin to wonder, are they here by choice, or have they been lured into a trap? Because magic never forgets the taste of your friendship. This was an inventive and thought-provoking novel that had me hooked from the very beginning. I love the concept of the story. It makes me think of Channel Zero's first season. This was a series that was on Shudder a few years ago. Each season was based on a creepypasta, and the first season was about a children's TV show that only children could see back in the 80s. But their parents have no memory of it ever existing, and then years later, the show resurfaces. And some of the characters try to figure out why, because the show was pretty fucking evil. And some kids ended up dying. Really good, highly recommended if you've not watched it. But all that to say, it reminded me of the premise of this book. 
Now, this book, with its allegorical elements and social commentary, offers readers a captivating exploration of our current society and the manipulation of children under the guise of protection. The story revolves around the five surviving cast members of the beloved children's program, Mr. Magic. Decades after an accident ended the show's production, the cast members are less than happy in their adult lives. They long for the happiness and sense of belonging they once felt. A twist of fate reunites the five cast members. We have Jenny, the mother of six, who is obviously unhappy with where she is in life. Javi, who is now a lawyer. Marcus, a gay man who came out later in life. Isaac, who is now a private investigator. And Val, a 30-something-year-old woman who now lives and works on a ranch in Idaho. Many people believe Val is at fault for this series ending. The problem is, Val has no recollection of ever being on the show. But after her father's death and the emergence of Marcus, Isaac, and Javi in her life, all claiming to know her from when she was a kid, Val is desperate to reconnect to her past, so she agrees to travel with them to Utah. The three men tell her that they're meeting Jenny in Utah and that they're going to be interviewed for a podcast that will focus on the final cast of Mr. Magic. Val sees this as an opportunity to fill in the blanks of her lost childhood and agrees to travel with them. The group finds themselves at a remote desert filming compound. This is a place that seems to have been waiting for them all these years. Memories begin to flood back when they enter the compound, and they're reminded of their shared secret, and of the mysterious man in his black cape. But who was he really? Peppered throughout the book are Reddit posts and other social media posts where people are talking about their memories of the show, but there's no proof that the show actually existed. There's also a group of people who claim to have seen the final episode and swear that one of the kids was killed during that episode, which is why production was shut down. White's descriptive writing style brings the world of Mr. Magic vividly to life and perfectly captures the unsettling atmosphere of the story. The remote desert location serves as a perfect backdrop and adds an extra layer of mystery and tension to the overall narrative. One of the aspects that I truly appreciated about Mr. Magic was the way it allegorically addresses important societal issues. It wasn't lost on me that the author used this story to highlight how the far right pushes dangerous ideologies under the pretext of protecting the innocence of kids. The author explores the manipulation and brainwashing that can occur when those in power claim that their book burnings and villainizing of LGBTQ plus community and all the other things they push are all under the guise of protecting the children, when in reality, it's nothing more than pushing fear and controlling the narrative, ensuring that things stay as straight, white, and Christian as possible. The characters in this novel are wonderfully developed, each with their own unique strengths and flaws. Their experiences and emotions are palpable, and I found myself emotionally invested in all of their journeys. The sense of camaraderie and shared history among the cast members adds depth to the relationships and makes the bond even more believable. As the circle of friends begin to piece together their past, they start questioning whether they have willingly returned or if they've fallen into a trap. The theme of sacrifice and the inevitable consequences of seeking answers becomes increasingly prominent. White expertly weaves together suspense, mystery, and the supernatural It keeps readers guessing until the very end. I didn't find the book especially scary, but it's definitely creepy and has something important to say. This is a well-crafted novel with a wildly inventive plot, and it makes this book a must-read for fans of dark and thought-provoking stories. I gave it 4 stars overall and rated it a 3 on my scary meter. Next, we'll dive into Isabel Cania's The Vampires of El Norte. 
This book was first published by Berkeley on August 15, 2023, and was one of my August Book of the Month picks. The synopsis reads, As the daughter of a rancher in 1840s Mexico, Nena knows a thing or two about monsters. Her home has long been threatened by tensions with Anglo settlers from the north, but something more sinister lurks near the ranch at night. Something that drains men of their blood and leaves them for dead. Something that once attacked Nena nine years ago. Believing Nena dead, Nestor has been on the run from his grief ever since, moving from ranch to ranch, working as a vaquero. But no amount of drink can dispel the night terrors of sharp teeth. No woman can erase his childhood sweetheart from his mind. When the United States attacks Mexico in 1846, the two are brought abruptly together on the road to war. Nena as a curandera, a healer striving to prove her worth to her father so that he does not marry her off to a stranger, and Nestor as a member of the auxiliary cavalry of ranchers and vaqueros. But the shock of their reunion, and Nena's rage at Nestor for seemingly abandoning her long ago, is quickly overshadowed by the appearance of a nightmare made flesh. And unless Nena and Nestor work through their past and face the future together, neither will survive to see the dawn. I realize that I probably butchered the pronunciation of a couple of words there. That's me. Anyway, I love the idea of exploring tensions between Mexican ranchers and Anglo settlers during the Mexican-American War and adding in the supernatural element of vampires. I mean, if it were possible, I wouldn't put it past the U.S. to actually do this. We were desperate for more, more, more land. Kind of still are. It's also been a while since I've read a vampire book, so I was eager to jump into this one. And while I liked the concept and the overall story, I would have liked more vampires and horror and less romance and love story. This book focuses on Nena, the daughter of a rancher who has grown up in a world plagued by the threat of violence and bloodshed. White men have claimed Texas and have either killed or driven many Mexican people south as they overtook more and more land. They're moving in on Nena's family's ranch, and everyone knows it's only a matter of time before the people in the community will be fighting for what's theirs, including their lives. When the novel starts, Nena is a spirited teenager who sneaks off to spend some time with her best friend and crush, Nestor. One night, the two set out to dig up what they believe may be buried treasure, but Nena is attacked by a fanged creature. Nestor manages to save her and carries her home, screaming for help, but she appears to be dead. Fearing Nena's wealthy father will beat him or worse, Nestor flees, harboring the guilt that he's responsible for Nena's death. Nine years later, Nena is alive and well, nursing a broken heart that Nestor just up and disappeared without even so much as a letter. Miles away, Nestor has been making a life for himself working on various ranches. But when he gets word that white men are moving ever closer to his hometown and Nena's family ranch, he feels compelled to go back and fight and imagine his surprise when he finds Nena alive and well. Nena's character is very complex. As we all know, women had a specific role back in the 1800s. Nena's desires differ from those of her wealthy father. She wants to become a healer, but he wants to marry her off to a wealthy family to strengthen their wealth and ensure a strong ally when the white men come. Nena also carries the weight of her past trauma on her shoulders, having survived a vampire attack years ago. Determined to prove herself capable and avoid an unwanted arranged marriage, Nena becomes a healer and heads into battle with her father and his group of men. She's hoping this will earn the respect of her father and allow her some bargaining room. Surely if he can see how capable she is and how useful she would be around the ranch, he won't try to marry her off. 
I found her character very likable, and she had many layers. I was really rooting for her. Nestor is equally intriguing and likable. Having believed Nana to be dead, he has spent years running from his grief, haunted by memories of what happened that night by the river. As a member of the Auxiliary Cavalry, Nestor finds himself reunited with Nena on the road to war. This forces them to confront their shared past and the unresolved feelings they still hold for one another. This reunion sparks a roller coaster of emotions as Nena's anger and resentment clash with Nestor's regret and longing. The overall plot of Vampires of El Norte is captivating. It seamlessly combines elements of history, romance, and supernatural horror. The author's ability to interweave these different genres is impressive, and it creates a compelling narrative. That said, I really wanted more tension and horror, and a lot less romance. On one hand, I felt that the romance definitely added an interesting layer to the overall story, but eventually it felt repetitive, and it really weighed the story down. I went in expecting a horror novel about vampires, but the presence of vampires is more of an underlying threat with the true heart of the story lying in the relationship between Nena and Nestor. While the focus on romance added depth and emotional resonance to the novel, those seeking a more traditional horror experience, like myself, might find themselves wanting more. In terms of writing style, though, the author excels. She's great at capturing atmosphere, and the descriptive style planted me firmly in Mexico in the late 1800s. The attention to detail paints a rich and immersive world that breathes life into the characters and the surroundings. Overall, I enjoyed the book, but I would have enjoyed it much more had it been less of a romance and had a lot more tension and scary elements. I liked the different take on vampires and how the author made the creature something different than what I was expecting. I just wanted more of them. Anyone looking for a gory horror novel should look elsewhere. But if you're looking for an interesting blend of historical fiction and the supernatural with a hefty dose of romance, this book might be for you. I gave it three and a half stars on my blog and Storygraph, rounded up to four stars on Goodreads. I gave it three and a half scare points. Some of the scenes were pretty great and pretty tense. I just, again, wanted more of them. All right, time for the last review. I will close out with my thoughts on Elizabeth Hand's A Haunting on the Hill. This book was released on October 3rd, 2023, and was published by Mulholland Books. I received an advanced copy of this book courtesy of the publisher through NetGalley in exchange for an honest review. The synopsis reads, Holly Sherwin has been a struggling playwright for years, but now, after receiving a grant to develop her play, The Witch of Edmonton, she may finally be close to her big break. All she needs is time and space to bring her vision to life. When she stumbles across Hill House on a weekend getaway upstate, she is immediately taken in by the ornate, if crumbling, gothic mansion nearly hidden outside a remote village. It's enormous, old, and ever so eerie, the perfect place to develop and rehearse her play. Despite her own hesitations, Holly's girlfriend, Nisa, agrees to join Holly in renting the house out for a month, and soon a troop of actors, each with ghosts of their own, arrive. Yet, as they settle in, the house's peculiarities are made known. Strange creatures stalk the grounds, disturbing sounds echo throughout the halls, and time itself seems to shift. All too soon, Holly and her friends find themselves at odds, not just with one another, but with the house itself. It seems something has been waiting in Hell House all these years, and it no longer intends to walk alone. I first read The Haunting of Hill House in high school and was a huge fan. 
I've always loved creepy haunted house stories, and that one grabbed a piece of my teenage heart and never let go. I wasn't that impressed with the movie adaptation with Luke Wilson, Catherine Zeta-Jones, and Lily Taylor in the late 90s, but then came Mike Flanagan's Netflix series, and while it differed significantly from the book, it was a nice and creepy extension of the Hill House legacy. I'm happy to report that this book also earned a spot in that legacy. Elizabeth Hand successfully brings the reader back into the world of Hill House, a place shrouded in darkness and haunted by a tragic history. This story follows Holly Sherwin, a struggling playwright who finally receives a grant to develop her play, The Witch of Edmonton. While out for a morning drive while on vacation, Holly stumbles across Hill House, a huge and slightly creepy mansion hidden away outside a small town. Something draws Holly to this house, and she gets the idea that it would be the perfect setting for her and the actors that she's hired to workshop her new play. She wants them all to shack up in the mansion for a few weeks and put the finishing touches on the script. She convinces her girlfriend, Nisa, that this is a great idea, and it's not long before the two of them move in along with their friend Stevie, who will do the sound design and will act as one of the characters in the play, and Amanda, a well-known actress who's agreed to star as the witch in the play. From the moment Holly steps foot inside Hill House, the atmosphere becomes palpable. The author's descriptive prose creates a sense of unease. It's not long before our characters hear strange voices carry on conversations at night, and strange smells and mysterious sounds that echo down the halls. And time itself seems to have a mind of its own, twisting and bending within the walls of the house. As the characters settle in, they find themselves growing suspicious of one another as the malevolent force of Hell House begins to break them down. Despite warnings from the housekeepers and a nearby neighbor that they need to leave before the house attacks, the four of them refuse to go, and it's when a severe storm sets in that we, the readers, know things are about to get extra creepy. While the atmosphere and tension were excellent and reminiscent of the original book, I couldn't help but wish for a little more of the ghostly apparitions and eerie occurrences. Mike Flanagan's version was absolutely chilling, and I went into this book expecting that same level of dread and eeriness. But I had to remind myself that many of the scares in the series were visual. Things that happened in the background, and you can't do those things in a book. I think one of the creepiest elements of this book was the presence of the hair this huge black rabbit that would randomly show up and just smile. It was both fun and creepy and added an extra layer of mystery to the already unsettling atmosphere. Additionally, the figure that Holly sees in the forest is terrifying. I definitely wanted a little more of that. The characters themselves are well-developed and layered, each have their own personal demons to deal with. Hand skillfully intertwines their individual stories with the overarching narrative, creating a compelling and intricate web of relationships. As the evil within Hell House begins to take hold, the tensions between the characters escalate, leading to startling revelations and definitely a few heartbreaking moments. This is a gripping and eerie novel that will definitely satisfy fans of the original book by Shirley Jackson. If you go into this after only watching the Netflix series, you might be disappointed. As I mentioned earlier, the TV series was able to add several creepy and downright scary moments by showcasing hidden things in the shadows that you can't do in a book. The book definitely feels like the original book and that the hauntings are mostly implied, which leaves you wondering how much is real and how much is happening in the character's head. I rated this one four stars, 
and gave it a three and a half on the scary meter. That's all I have for you this week. I'm hoping to be able to cover five books each week in October. Hopefully I can keep up with that. But don't forget to rate and subscribe on whatever podcast app you're listening on. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram for all things bookish. The handle there is at justreaditalreadypod. You can also find links to all of the books that I talked about today on the website at justreaditalready.com. Be sure to join me next week when I share my thoughts on Jason Rakulik's Hidden Pictures, Danielle Valentine's How to Survive Your Murder, Laura Sims' How Can I Help You, Darcy Coates' Dead of Winter, and Clemence Michelon's The Quiet Tenant. I'll see you then.